This podcast is generously supported by the Jesus Bible NIV edition. With exclusive articles from Louis Giglio, John Piper, and Randy Alcorn, the Jesus Bible lifts Jesus up as the lead story of the Bible. It is available as a full study Bible, as well as available as individual Bible journals. Find out more at www.thejesusbible.com. Want to learn how to interpret and teach the entire Bible in a way that is Christ-centered and clear? Learn with us here on the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. to turn to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Not often have to pull this pulpit up. Uh, Judges chapter 7. It's on page 175. The kids can leave at this point to their their kids clubs. Uh, As as they leave, we're looking at Judges chapter 7 and 8. So as they are leaving, we're going to Read actually the whole two chapters. Now that might seem a lot of a reading, uh, but I'm going to read it all. uh, And then whenever we're going through it, hopefully we'll we'll just be summarizing parts. Because sometimes with Old Testament narrative, you need to hear the whole big story, the big picture to understand what's going on. So we're going to read Judges chapter 7 and 8, page 175. And I encourage you to listen and follow along and try and uh, understand and, and, and follow the story uh, of Gideon uh, that we looked at, uh, that we began last week in Judges 6. The Judges chapter 7 and Judges uh, chapter 8. Uh, we are to, de- the Bible says we're to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. So uh, I'm not ashamed to read two chapters. Let's follow along. Judges chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, Announced to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. 
Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he said. He was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midian camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they'd changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the three hundred trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shitta towards Sarah, as far as the border of Abel Mehola, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why, why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him harshly. But he answered, But what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleadings of Ephraim's grapes better than the, the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against them subsided. Gideon and his three hundred men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, 
Give me my troops some bread. They're, they're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. <laughs> but the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why, why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmona into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of eastern peoples, and 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbeha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down from the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give you bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Salmona, What kind of man did you kill at Tabor? Men like you. They answered each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers. The sons of my own mother, as surely as the Lord lives, if you'd spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw a sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Salmona said, come do it yourself. As is a man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told him, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was a custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah. His town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family.
Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its hand again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 70 years. Jeroboam, son of Josh, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Josh, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Josh, in Ophrah of the Abizrites. This podcast is generously sponsored by the Pillar Network. The Pillar Network is a community of SBC and International Baptist churches that are doctrinally aligned, missionally driven, and committed to equipping, planting, and revitalizing churches together. If you're a pastor of an established church and you're desiring to lead your congregation to plant churches, but you're not sure how to get started, Pillar could be a great resource for you. Reach out to them today at thepillarnetwork.com. Thepillarnetwork.com. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now. By your Spirit, we are completely dependent on you. Speak to us wherever we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. So get in. Was he a good guy or a bad guy? After listening to that, was he a man of faith or a man of failure? What do you think? Well, let's see. We know Gideon had been called to rescue the Israelites. We saw in chapter 6, he had some doubts, and, and we would have those doubts too. And he wanted reassurance, and God graciously gave him signs. But he has been told, you're going to defeat the Midianites. So what happens? Well, in chapter 7, let me highlight a key verse, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. This is the key to the whole of chapter 7. God says, I'm going to deliver the Midianites. But he wanted them to know it was the Lord who was going to do the delivering and that they weren't allowed to boast. How many men had they? Well, they had 32,000. And God said, that's too many. If anybody's scared, they can leave. And 22,000 left. So we're left with 10,000. Then in verse 4, he says, you've still far too many men. Take them to the water and I'll sift them from there. And they went to the water and 300 of them lapped their, the water with their hands into their mouths. And others got down on their knees and, and lapped like a dog. And in verse 7, the Lord says, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into their hands. Let the other man go. Now, I remember when I was younger, being taught, well, those who lapped like a dog, they were right down and lapping. They weren't looking around them. Where the ones who were using their hands and bringing it up, they were the vigilant guys who would make good soldiers and be on the lookout even whilst they drink. That's not in the text. I think that's wrong. The whole point is to show that the Lord does this through weakness, not through the best soldiers. Nothing in the text suggests that the lappers were better. It was simply God's way of reducing the 10,000 down to 300. Because verse 2, he wanted to show his power through their weakness. So he just had 300. By the way, this is not good military strategy. You're going to fight a massive army. And as chapter 8 reveals, we read that there's 135,000 of them. 15,000, 120,000. And he has 32,000. And he reduces it by 99% down to 300. 
Why? Because the Lord wanted them to show this is what the Lord is going to do. It's not anything to do with you. And in case we miss that in verse 7 and in verse 9, it talks about, and the Lord's going to hand them over. It's the Lord is going to do this saving. Verse 10 onwards, we have this episode where the Lord asks Gideon, well, if you're afraid, let me reassure you. Now, by the way, this is God initiating the reassurance here, unlike in chapter 6 where Gideon was pleading, God's doing it, gracious of God wants to reassure him. And he tells Gideon to go into the camp, and he does. And in verse 12, we see this great army being described, like locusts. And then he overhears two Midianites chat. One of them goes, I had a dream that a loaf of barley came and struck down the tent. And the mate says to him, verse 14, this is telling us that God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Isn't it amazing? God uses Midianites to communicate a reassuring word to Gideon. It's quite remarkable. And how does Gideon respond? Verse 15, he worships God. Gideon is a man of faith at this point. And what does he do? He goes off to battle. He divided the 300 into three groups, gave them a trumpet, a torch, a jar. They made their way to the edge of the Midianite camp. And following Gideon's lead... They blew their trumpets, they smashed the jars, they held the torches high and they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And what happened? Well, just in case we think it was all because of Gideon that brought the defeat, look at verse 22. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So the Lord sent them into chaos and they turned and killed each other. 120,000 of them. This is clearly the Lord's doing. Then some of the rest of the army fled. And Israel pursued, verse 23, and Gideon summoned the Ephraimites to come and help. And they captured a couple of their leaders. But it's clear, the whole of chapter 7, that God delivers his people. The Lord did the saving, and there was no way Israel could boast about it because God's purpose was to say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to reduce your numbers to show you can't boast. I'm the one who's saving you. So the glory goes to the Lord, not to Israel. The whole point in this chapter is teaching us God's glory is displayed through weakness. God's glory is displayed through weakness. The glory is is to go to God. It was impossible for Israel to say, yep, we did this in our own strength. The victory came by the Lord. God's glory displayed through weakness. And God wanted that truth to hit home. And we need to grasp the same truth and realize how inadequate we are. And yet God's glory is displayed through that. That happens in salvation. For us to become a Christian, to be in a relationship with God, we cannot ever think we have any way or contribute anything to it or that we deserve it or that we have earned it. We have to admit we're sinners. We're weak. We're helpless. We deserve death because of our sin 
and that we cannot save ourselves. And we have to come to that point of helplessness before God who is holy and just and realize we've sinned, we have a huge death, we're helpless in and of ourselves, we're weak. And we need to realize that and realize that God does all the work and the saving. And he did that by sending Jesus when he took the punishment for our sin on the cross, and he rose again. And when we realize he did that and just trust in him and his work, then salvation comes. We're justified. We're accepted by God. And if we truly are a Christian, we can't boast at all. If anyone here thinks, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm a pretty good person, I'd say you're not a Christian. A Christian, a true Christian, is someone who realizes, I'm not good. I'm helpless. I'm weak. But God loved me so much that he sent Jesus, and I'm trusting in his work who has done it all to forgive me of my sin. And we need to realize that we're weak and helpless. And when we do, we're more grateful for our salvation, and God gets the glory. It must happen at salvation, God's glory displayed in our weakness. But it also must happen in our Christian life if you're a Christian. Because God delights to use weak weak people. Why? So that in our Christian life, we can't boast either. It's comforting to know that God uses people who have doubts. People who have weaknesses, like Gideon. God often takes weak people, and he specifically wants to use them in his service. Why? So that God will get the glory. Don't ever think because of some weakness that you have, some feeling, some past failures, that God can't use you. God delights to use our weaknesses. So that he'll get the glory. And he wants us to realize how inadequate we are apart from him. And actually God might decide to whittle us down. Until we realize it's not about us. It's about God and his glory. I'm continually being taught that. And I need to be taught that. And I needed to be taught that when I was at Bible college in London. I was serving away, studying hard. I was single. I was devoting myself to serving the Lord, preaching, running youth groups. And I was probably starting to think, yeah, I'm doing pretty well here. I'm a pretty good Christian. And I was looking around some of the other students and thinking, how come you're not serving as much in your church? What happened? Well, both Caroline and I got sick. And God was teaching me a lesson through it because it wasn't a pleasant illness. It wiped me out for a number of months where for a number of months I couldn't even walk a few hundred meters. And I had to pull out of college, pull out of camp, miss a whole year, go back to Donegal and recover. Caroline had to pull out of her work too. And a verse that I remember speaking to me over and over again was in Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. 
And he does not live in temple built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God didn't need me. It's him who does the work. It's just a privilege to be involved in it. And God's glory is displayed through weakness. And that was a humbling experience for me that I needed to learn. And unfortunately, I'm probably going to have to experience many more. Because we've got to realize it's God's work. And we need to learn like Paul did, who was given a, a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was, whether it was an illness, whether it was something else. But it was given, he said, by the Lord to stop him from being conceited, it says. Because he says in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away with me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. We may have weaknesses, thorns, and it might remain with us for the rest of our life so that we grasp the promise, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Why? So that God gets the glory through our weakness. And that's displayed in salvation, in our Christian life, in great periods of revival. William McCulloch was a Scottish minister in the 1700s. He was a very scholarly pastor in Scotland, outside Glasgow, excelling in languages. He was a Hebrew expert, but they said he had very little gift in the pulpit. His own son described him as a very ready, not a very ready speaker, not eloquent. His manner was slow and cautious. In fact, he was called and called an ill minister which meant that when he rose to speak, a number of audience left to quench their thirst at the local pub. <laughs> An ill minister. Sometimes we think, we might need an amazing, fiery preacher who preaches with real passion, and that's great. Yet it can't be manufactured. We need, what we need is a work of the Spirit. And God chose to use William McCulloch's ministry as a means of revival in Scotland and Cambus Lang and hundreds became Christians because God delights to use weak people so that he gets a glory. God's glory is displayed through weakness. Well, by chapter 8, I think we'll find a bit of a contrast at the beginning of chapter 8, the Ephraimites come to Gideon with a complaint, and they said, why didn't you call us when, we, when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him, because they think a lot of themselves, and they want to be part of the victory, which is why it was just right of God to say, I'm just using 300. They felt they missed out on some of their victory, their glory. And Gideon responds nicely, and he goes, oh, look, you've, you've got, you're more powerful than our clan, and sure, you've killed a couple of their leaders, and their resentment subsided. And by the end of verse 3, we're going, Gideon is a great man of fear. But ended there, we'd go, good for Gideon. And yeah, I think there's a bit of a downward spiral now, because in verse 4, we see Gideon and his 300 men are exhausted, and they come across Israelites from Succoth, and they ask for some bread. 
But the people of Succoth in verse 6 say, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Salmona in your possession? Why, why should we give you bread to your troops? In other words, have you defeated them all yet? Answer, no. So he's going, why should I give you bread? And you can see from their perspective, they're having doubts. They've seen 15,000 Midianites run past, and here comes Gideon with 300 men. And they're thinking, if I support Gideon and 300 men, if the Midianites defeat them, well, they're going to come back and plunder, kill us. So they had doubts. A bit like what Gideon had doubts in chapter 6. But how did God respond in chapter 6? Let me reassure you. How did Gideon respond in verse 8? I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. This is his own people. Same thing happens with the people from Peniel, and he says, I'll tear down the tower. We read in verse 10 onwards, the 15,000 Midianites who were left, Gideon goes in and defeats them. Then Gideon comes back, finds a man of Succoth. He gets the names of the leaders of the towns, and in verse 16, he got them, and it says he taught them a lesson with the thorns and the briars. And then in the people of Peniel, he goes to them, he pulls down their tower, but he even does more. He kills a man of the tower. Should he have done that? This is his own people. Nowhere does God say to do that. He's starting to take the law into his own hands. I actually think he's starting to let the victory get to his head. And he's being vengeful. And in fact, the downward spiral again is seen in verses 18 to 22, where Zeba and Salmona, the Midianites, ask him, what kind of man did you kill? And we realize they killed some of Gideon's family. And out of vengeance, he asked his son, kill him. He won't do it. And they reply, do it yourself as is a man, so is his strength. And Gideon killed him taking it into his own hands and acting in his own strength. Remember chapter 7, verse 2. God says, I want you to know it's me who does the work and it's in my strength, not yours. This is not good. And the final episode is most tragic. They say to Gideon, Israelites, be our king in verse 22 and 23. And Gideon replies in verse 23, no, I, I won't be king or, or my son. The Lord will rule over you. That sounds good, yeah, doesn't it? With his mouth, he goes, no, I don't want to be king. But with his actions, he goes, yes, I do. Bring it on. Why do I say that? Well, he firstly starts to assume the honor of a king. Bring the riches to me like all the other kings around him would have. He goes after riches. Verse 24, then in verse 27, he makes an ephod with the gold. Now the ephod was what the high priests wore. It was used for making decisions, getting decisions from God. The priests wore it and, and ministered at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was already in a place at Shiloh. And there was already a priest there. But Gideon says, let me make my own. Now Gideon's wanting to be in control even of the God business. The worship. And he sets up an alternative place of worship. And what's the result in verse 27? All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. 
Gideon, because of his desire for his own glory, working in his own strength, has led Israel to sin because he wanted to be king. In case we haven't fully grasped that, down in verse 29, he takes a whole pile of wives, which is what the other kings did. It wasn't what a godly king should do. And he gave birth to a son. One of them is named Abimelech. In case you don't realize, might be in some of your footnotes, Abimelech means, my father is king. Ah, I think he wants to be king. Even though earlier he says, oh, no, 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 I don't want to be king. The Lord's king. He is acting in his own strength, wanting the glory, and the victory has gone to his head. And when they said in verse 22, rule over us because you've saved us, Gideon. Gideon should have stepped forward and gone, I didn't save you. The Lord saved you. But he didn't because it's all gone to his head. And he's working in his own strength. If chapter 7 is showing God's power displayed through weakness, chapter 8 is telling us, Gideon, it's not about your glory in your strength. But that's what you've done. He was a man of faith, chapter 7, but he's failed and didn't end well in chapter 8. And this is a warning to us. Sometimes God's people will disappoint. If you aren't aware of that, you may not survive in church. You might come across leaders who at some stage will get attracted to money, status, and in the end it could lead to disaster. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for me, you, to always remember it's the Lord's work for his glory can happen in ministry and it can happen in your life. Maybe you do well in exams and do well at work and get a successful job, a good career. And that might be all right, depending on your attitude. But someone who is living for career success, the worst thing that can happen to them is to have career success. Because it'll just confirm to them, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. And they'll forget that they're nothing apart from God. If we forget that it's all for God's glory and he's done it all, we can become judgmental. If we realize we're all saved by grace, God has done it all, we can't go judging others. It's amazing how many people can hold the correct doctrine, the doctrines of grace, and yet can be so judgmental and criticizing. That means it's gone to their heads and they think, I've figured this out. I'm pretty good. That's not humility. That's pride. That's judgmentalism. And if we believe that God saves, there's no grounds for boasting. Brother Gideon's a hypocrite, isn't he? Oh, yeah, I don't want to be king. Oh, I do in my actions. Good theology, terrible practice. He was a hypocrite. Unfortunately, in some sense, we all are. But we won't be hypocrites if we are happy to admit our weaknesses. Realize we're not perfect. Let people know, rather than pretending to people, you know, we're someone that we're not. Folks, I'm a selfish sinner. I sometimes lose patience with my kids. Have an argument with my wife. You know, it's comforting to know that God can use weak people 
so that he gets the glory. Gideon let it get to his head. He wanted to be king. He wasn't humble. And the whole book is crying out of judges. We need a king who is humble, who doesn't want glory for himself. It's crying out. We need Jesus, who being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He had every right to be king for the position, and yet he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God delights to use the humble, like Christ. If all of us had amazing abilities, people might look, to us instead of God. If all of us were impressive people, people might think, oh, being a Christian is about being successful. But we're weak. So that God will get the glory. Charlotte Elliott was a beautiful, talented comedy writer. But when she was 32, she was struck down with a mystery illness that meant that she was paralyzed and bedridden. And she remained that way for the next 50 years. An evangelist, someone came and visited her and told her about Jesus and asked her, are you a Christian? She didn't like that question. How dare you ask me? But it stuck with her. And for a few weeks, she mulled it over. And this guy came back again. And she asked him, how can I come to Christ? And he replied, you have nothing of merit. You must come just as you are. She became a Christian. Her life was transformed, but her health never returned. She suffered for all those years. She ended up, though, able to write songs, and she wrote 150 songs that were published in the Invalid's Hymn Book. Her most famous hymn echoes the words that were used to bring her to Christ, to bring her joy in Christ. Just as I am, without one plea, But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. That song became the theme song for the evangelist Billy Graham, was used by God to draw many people to share her joy in Christ. It's not about our glory and our strength. God's glory is displayed through our week. So whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God.
you for listening to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or text you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com. And please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources. Thank you.